The world is ending. The left side of America is on fire. We ran out of hurricane names because there were too many hurricanes. We are living through a climate crisis that will only get worse. And us, humans whose fault this is, only have a few more years to fix it. So surely, America's gotta have someone good on that, right? Scientific community has said that climate change is one of the great crises facing our planet. And if there is not unprecedented action to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to sustainable energy and energy efficiency, there will be irreparable damage in the United States and in virtually every country on Earth. Do you agree with the scientific community? I would not call it the greatest crisis, no, sir. I, I, I consider it a, a huge issue that has to be addressed globally. You just heard Senator Bernie Sanders grilling Andrew Wheeler at confirmation hearings following Wheeler's official nomination to lead the Environmental Protection Agency in 2019. Wheeler had been serving as acting administrator of the agency since 2018. Andrew Wheeler is the current administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He was a co-lobbyist, and I think he continues to be a spokesperson for the fossil fuel industry. Wheeler does not draw the attention of a cabinet member like Mike Pompeo or Attorney General Barr, to be sure. Um, but the actual policy legacy of um, essentially making it impossible for the U.S. government to do anything about climate change, Wheeler's the one who has very methodically executed that. The people trotting us towards apocalypse aren't necessarily supervillains, laughing maniacally as they detonate the world's volcanoes. Sometimes they are faceless bureaucrats who have spent their lives fighting behind the scenes to destroy whatever minimum anti-apocalypse legislation the U.S. had to begin with, appointed, almost ironically, to lead agencies whose purpose, protecting our air, water, and environment, is at odds with much of their life's work. Today, we're talking about the Environmental Protection Agency and the longtime lobbyist and alleged climate crisis skeptic who's now in charge of it. A man who, in just a few years, has single-handedly done more to harm the environment than almost anyone else in American government. So, who is Andrew Wheeler? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. I want to go back to the beginning of the agency that Andrew Wheeler is in charge of today. In 1969, a river caught on fire. The Cuyahoga River ran through a then-factory-filled Cleveland, Ohio. There was almost no waste disposal regulation of the city's numerous factories, so the Cuyahoga slowly filled with so much pollution that a single spark from a passing train set the whole damn thing on fire. Today, I'm used to the idea of fossil fuel companies marching us towards the climate crisis. But in the 1960s, America was first starting to comprehend environmental disaster. Here's Coral Davenport, who covers energy and environmental policy with a focus on climate change. For the New York Times. In the 1960s, Americans were seeing a different kind of environmental crisis. They were seeing unregulated pollution going into the air and water. Famously, Cuyahoga River in Ohio was in flames because of all of the toxic pollution that was burning. Because there were not 
major federal regulations on air and water. Rivers weren't just on fire. They were colorful, too. I lived in Boston. The rivers ran green and red at times when when uh, the manufacturing uh, facilities were dumping dye into the river without any kind of treatment or anything. That's Gina McCarthy, who would, 45-ish years later, go on to be administrator of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Today, she's head of the Natural Resources Defense Council, a major environmental advocacy group, like the ACLU of the environment. But it's this situation of out-of-control industry with rivers red, green, and on fire that would lead to the passage of major environmental regulation and the creation of the EPA in 1970. The mission of the EPA is to protect public health and natural resources. It's the agency that tries to protect you from pollution as well as to address climate change. Back to Coral Davenport. The sort of big environmental laws that we have in the U.S. are the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And those sort of set the stage for how we're going to regulate air and water and chemicals and pesticides and all this stuff in our environment. And the EPA's job is to create those regulations, oversee them, make sure that they work the way they're supposed to, that they that they strike a balance between protecting the environment but not hurting the economy. EPA actually writes and administers those regulations. And uh, as a result, even though it's a pretty small agency, it does end up having a lot of power over major parts of the economy, which has made it a very controversial agency as well. The EPA is a federal agency because if you leave environmental regulation up to the states, what ensues is a predictable race to the bottom. But that means the agency has long been a target of conservative big government critique, states' rights, and making it possible for business to operate without burdensome regulations and all that. One of the things that was happening in a lot of industrial states is that um, states would compete to have the loosest, weakest state-level environmental regulations in order to lure industry. There was this kind of race to the bottom of which states could have weaker environmental regulations, and the country's air and water and public health was suffering. And so this is what sort of led to we need a federal agency to oversee this, and we need federal laws. And this is something where even though states still do have the authority to set a lot of their own environmental rules. Um, it was sort of decided the air and water are a public good and and they need to be taken care of at a national level. And that's going to be the, the EPA is going to regulate it. And then at the same time, Congress also enacted the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act to create these laws that the EPA would administer to keep us all safe. This is what we like want government to do have experts who ensure that the tap water we drink is safe and that the air we breathe is clean and that we're doing something to address the very real climate crisis. So today, who's driving this thing? Enter Andrew Wheeler. Andrew Wheeler has succeeded in completely, just about completely undoing the U.S. climate regulatory regime. America was actually making progress on climate change. Before the Obama administration... The, the federal government had no laws or rules in place at all to address climate change. And that was one of the biggest legacies of the Obama administration. Um, what, what the Obama administration did is they, they used the power of the EPA to create a set of three kind of three major regulations. Some, some of them, it was like a couple of different regulations, but sort of three buckets of climate change regulations. The first one is the regulation 
on auto tailpipe pollution, largest source of greenhouse gases in the U.S. That rule basically would have totally transformed the U.S. auto industry and forced U.S. automakers to immediately start building and selling hybrid, electric, low-pollution vehicles. That would have transformed the U.S. auto industry, but also the U.S. emissions profile. There really are things that we can be doing to, if not prevent climate change, at least make its effects less severe. And then the second one was focused on um, coal-fired power plants, which are the second largest source of greenhouse emissions in the U.S. Um, and and that, re that regulation, it was called the Clean Power Plan, essentially was designed to it, cr it created a mandate for states to lower their emissions from electric power plants. And if fully implemented, that would have transformed the U.S. electricity system, um, ultimately would have shut down almost every coal plant in the country. And it was designed to aggressively to force electric utilities to aggressively build and invest in renewable electricity. So that would have been both transformative in terms of how we get our electricity and also it would have slashed emissions from, from another major polluter. Sounds pretty good, right? Remember, these are all things that aren't happening. The third set of regulations was aimed at methane emissions, specifically from the oil and gas sector. So methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. It's not as it's not doesn't have the profile of carbon dioxide and there's not nearly as much in it as the in the atmosphere. So it's not it doesn't get all the attention, but it has about 80 times the heat trapping power of carbon dioxide. So there's even if there's less heaven in the atmosphere, um, it can trap a lot more heat. It's very potent. And one of the ways it gets out into the atmosphere is that it leaks from oil and gas wells. So the Obama administration put in a set of, meth of regulations on methane, basically requiring oil and gas drillers to detect their methane leaks, plug them up, make sure that methane stays in the ground, doesn't get out in the atmosphere. Obama had a plan, which was also a means of getting the world to get its act together before it's too late. So those are the three biggest things that Obama did to tackle climate change. And this was also what... Obama and former Secretary of State John Kerry would talk about when they would go abroad in the world, they would say, this is what the U.S. is doing on climate change. And that gave them leverage to push other countries to act as well. Andrew Wheeler has succeeded in almost entirely undoing all of those regulations. Under Andrew Wheeler, the EPA is not only shifting how things are regulated at the federal level, but going after the long-established ability of states like California to write their own environmental regulations. So much for that whole states' rights thing. California has, because L.A. in particular has always had famously bad smoggy air, California uh, was given a waiver under the Clean Air Act that it is allowed to set more stringent state-level air pollution standards than the federal standard. And it, it has done that on all, all manner of pollutants over the years. And that rule also says that if any, any other state wants to also have tighter standards than um, the federal standard for their state-level pollution, they can follow California. So it, it's not that every state gets to set its own standards. Basically, California sets the lower standard and other states can say if i want if we want a cleaner standard we can do we can do what california does when um the trump administration moved forward to undo the the obama regulation on greenhouse pollution from vehicles is california said well we have our waiver from the clean air act so we are just going to have our we're gonna we're, gonna, we're actually going to keep the obama rule but that's where that'll that will now be our state 
waiver, you know, our, our state, our state standard. And there's 13 other states that follow that particular one. So those states follow it too. And so this created, that would, that is something that the auto companies see as just this ultimate nightmare where you would have a federal standard for vehicle tailpipe pollution and mileage. And then you would have 13 states that have a much tighter standard. And then the auto companies are like, Jesus, how do you build and sell like different cars in different states? This is going to be a nightmare. Um, And what the Trump administration did, what Andrew Wheeler did is they said, well, we're going to revoke your waiver. You no long, you don't get to do that. Um, and they did. They they did a rulemaking and they revoked California's legal right to set its own standard just just for these greenhouse tailpipe emissions. And in so doing, it it revokes the right of of all those other states to do the same thing. So this absolutely has erupted into this battle about not just climate change but states' rights as well. Major automakers didn't want this rollback of California's authority to set its own standards. Consumer auto supply chains are really complicated, and California is one of the biggest car markets in the world. The Motor and Equipment Manufacturers Association, which represents companies that make the parts that make cars, told Time Magazine in 2019 that the change would, quote, contribute to ongoing regulatory uncertainty, which could have damaging effects on industry's ability to invest and plan for the future and impact industry's ability to grow jobs. Basically, uncertainty makes it really difficult for massive corporations to plan ahead. Think about how crazy this is. Four of the largest auto companies in the world, including Ford Motor Company, said, please don't do that. That will actually hurt us. It will cause regulatory uncertainty. And several other auto companies not who, who didn't sign on to the California deal also wrote to the administration and said, this is going to hurt us more than help us. Please don't do it this way. And then they went ahead and did it. And I can tell you there's, there's so much distress among several automakers about this regulatory rollback that the administration said was designed to help them, which they think will end up hurting their bottom lines, and which they told the White House very clearly, and they went ahead and did it. Like a 90s Walmart commercial, it's all rollbacks, rollbacks, rollbacks. And it's not just Obama-era regulations designed to protect the climate, but rules designed to protect, like all of us, from being poisoned by the fish that we eat. Here's Gina McCarthy. You had a rule that was all about emitting uh, mercury, which is a neurotoxin. It impacts people's brains, mostly of fetuses as they're growing and young children. And it can and, and certainly does cause death at different quantities. And mercury is emitted from utilities that burn coal in particular. And there was a rule that we're required un- under the law to do and revisit. Um, and it, it's called the Mercury and Air Toxic Standard, or MATS is what we called it. And basically, it was a rule to recognize that mercury is being emitted at, at high levels from these plants when there's technology available to take that mercury out of the air and to stop that pollution that ends up getting in the air and getting into rivers and streams and then getting into fish, which we eat. And we are seeing high levels of people in, in terms of the amount of mercury they eat, which is why 
if if many of the young people listening, they may have uh, uh, young children or they may have moms and dads who are having kids or uh, women who are pregnant. And it's really important that they limit the amount of fish they eat. It's because there's too much mercury in our fish. Too much mercury in fish? I want somebody to do something about that. So we were trying to get at that issue, and we we actually put something in place called the Mercury and Air Toxic Standard, which actually was was uh, finalized during the Obama administration. By the time Wheeler came into office at EPA, he was given an already done deal. The the technology was in place. The utilities had already done this. We saw mercury levels going down so the fish would be cleaner and, and people could eat that fish and we could save lots of damage to kids' brains. And the utility industry, the largest utility lobbying industry, wrote him a letter the day he got to EPA and said, do not get rid of the mercury and air toxic standard. We found the letter McCarthy's referring to. In it, the utility lobby and others wrote that owners and operators of coal and oil-based power plants had spent more than $18 billion to comply with the mercury and air toxic standards, or MATS, since they became effective in 2012. And good news, the rules in part resulted in a reduction in mercury emissions by nearly 90% during the 2010s, according to the power plant lobby at least. It gets complicated, but as a result of this investment and fear of regulatory uncertainty, which seriously, ask your corporate friends, it's a big deal, the writers urged EPA to leave the underlying mercury and air toxic standards in place and effective. So, businesses had invested billions to comply with a regulation designed to protect Americans from mercury. And Wheeler rolled back the rule anyway, after the industries specifically asked him not to. It's kind of like a giant fuck you to both the American public and, unusually, big business. Here's Gina McCarthy. He eliminated it. And he and basically he decided unilaterally that we would be able to live with many more deaths in the United States because he said that we were too rigorous and how we looked at the law and didn't look at cost enough. When the data itself shows that this was cost effective and the utility industries were no way looking at having this rule revisited. And, and he only did that to try to make sure that he was changing the ways in which EPA looks at all the benefits associated with rules like this and he didn't give a damn if it cost the industry more money, but he certainly didn't give a damn if there were there were lives lost as a result. And it's very disturbing, and I'm sorry I said damn twice. Gina, you said damn three times. But these regulatory rollbacks aren't even helping big business, and they just keep coming. We did a rule called the Clean Water Rule that looked at, at how we can protect all the upstream wetlands and waterways that are necessary to protect the drinking water of 130 million people in the United States because it wasn't being properly protected. And the Supreme Court said, hey, EPA, get your act together. Relook at this. Do the science. So we went through a two to three year rigorous process of figuring out what those upstream areas are 
that actually make a difference in terms of the water quality that ends up in our drinking water systems and how we can protect it from both a quality and a quantity perspective so that as people did construction or filled in different areas, how can we make sure that they didn't damage resources that are so essential for purifying water that goes to our drinking water supplies or the amount of water that goes. And what we found was that we had to make some substantial changes in protection, but that there was ample ways of doing that that would still allow people to use their land effectively. And we did that, and this administration decided that they didn't want to do it anymore, so they withdrew that rule. And they put a rule in place that essentially narrows what was even in existence before we started this rule that totally dismissed the science of the connection between these wetlands and these beautiful rivers and streams and and what value they bring in terms of of protecting areas that are pristine and beautiful and that also it's so important to protecting drinking water. And they simply dismantled it and they replaced it with something that was basically going to put all of those people back at risk and even more so, even beyond the areas where we thought it was essential to keep making progress. Yeah, this is the Navigable Waters Protection Rule and the change has been called the, quote, dirty water rule. It really sucks, and you probably haven't heard about it because it's gotten very little coverage, which is part of the Andrew Wheeler story. Quietly, extremely effective. So how does a guy get into a position of power where he, while rarely ever making the news, can roll back important climate and environmental regulations during these key few years we have to prevent total and existential climate catastrophe? Not to mention enjoy clean water and clean air for breathing or whatever. We'll dive into Wheeler's past and his roots in West Virginia after this. Andrew Wheeler is head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. But instead of protecting the environment, Wheeler has meticulously dismantled the rules that protect our air, our water, and which seek to do something to address the climate crisis. How did the agency responsible for protecting America's environment end up in the hands of this guy. Where does Andrew Wheeler come from? Here's Coral Davenport. When he really popped onto my radar um, was at the beginning of the Trump administration when he was appointed as deputy head of the EPA. I did a story at the time about how many former Inhofe staffers were going to the EPA. Senator Jim Inhofe. He's the chef boyardee of climate denial. He didn't invent it, but he canned it and shifted it across America, weaving together complete misunderstandings of science with rambling diatribe into a neat ravioli of bullshit. In case we have forgotten, because we keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record, I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball, and that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out. Very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm-hmm. Here's Gina McCarthy. Jim, Jim Inhofe was really the spokesperson for, for climate denial. He's been doing that for decades. Um, he is a senator from Oklahoma, and he's made it seemingly his life's mission uh, to try to convince people that 
cl- the climate change is not happening. He has this real propensity to confuse climate uh, change with the weather. And of course, he's Andrew Wheeler's old boss. He worked for Senator Inhofe, um, who is the senator from Oklahoma, and who has who also uh, become well-known for being kind of the most prominent and um, almost gleeful member of the, of the Republican Party to openly question, denounce, or mock the established science of human-caused climate change. He, Senator Inhofe, has publicly called co- climate change a, a hoax. He likes to sort of stage little scenes on the Senate floor. I think one year he he brought in a, a it was snowing outside the Capitol. He brought a snowball in and, and, and like talked about how it was melting and kind of made fun of climate change. So, you know, Senator Inhofe is is famous for mocking and denying the science of climate change and being sort of the most vocal and obvious opponent of any kind of policies designed to tackle climate change. And yes, Andrew Wheeler was his former chief of staff. But the real money isn't in the Senate. So Wheeler goes into private practice, lobbying. He starts at Fager Baker Daniels, where he lobbied on behalf of companies like Sargento Foods, a cheese manufacturer, which wanted to blur a labeling distinction between natural and processed cheese. Wheeler also helped a mining company convince the Interior Department to redraw the borders of Bears Ears National Monument so the company could mine for uranium in what was once protected public land. But the lobbying client that sticks out most is Murray Energy, a coal mining company run by CEO Robert Murray who also happens to be a major Trump donor. As a lobbyist, Wheeler fought regulation of coal, and he'd even become vice president of something called the Washington Coal Club. As administrator of the EPA, he'd have the opportunity to undo the regulation he'd long fought against. I did work for a coal company, and I'm not at all ashamed of the work that I did for the coal company. And if you don't mind, I want to go off script for a minute and just talk a little bit about that, because I think it's important. I I know in the press, uh, it's... I think it's been used by some people to a, in a derogatory manner, um, but I am actually proud of the work I did. I want to explain in particular the last four to five years working for the company, the number one issue that they asked me to work on was the Miners Protection Act. The Miners Protection Act was to shore up the pension and health care benefits for the United Mine Workers retirees. Um, I did, before I, before I left private practice, we were able to pass legislation for the health care benefits, but we never finished the pension benefits. And that is, I, I really wish we had done that before I, before I left the Senate, um, maybe before I left private practice. And that legislation was introduced by, by Senator Manchin and Capito of, of West Virginia. And, and that was, really was important to me. My grandfather was a coal miner during the Depression. Uh, my grandmother raised her children in the coal camps in West Virginia. In fact, I still have some of the company script that she used to buy food in the company store. Um, and so the, the work that I did on behalf of the company to, to try to help the retirees of the United Mine Workers is the reason why the United Mine Workers um, endorsed my confirmation when I was nominated last year. I don't think that story has been out there, and I think as employees of the agency, um, you need to know that about me. That's Andrew Wheeler himself addressing employees of the EPA when he first became acting head of the agency in 2018. We're going to go off script for a second, too, because West Virginia is important. We don't have time to get into this here, but 
Whenever politicians talk about fighting for the pensions and healthcare benefits of retired miners, your eyebrows should go up. Way up. But anyway, to get a better sense of West Virginia coal and coal country, I spoke with Ken Ward Jr. I'm Ken Ward Jr. I'm a investigative reporter in West Virginia. I work on staff as a reporter for ProPublica, and I am a co-founder of Mountain State Spotlight, which is a brand new nonprofit civic newsroom doing uh, reporting about my home state of West Virginia. Uh, been a reporter in West Virginia, my, basically my whole adult, adult life, going on about uh, 30 years in the business now. In West Virginia, America's second largest producer of coal after Wyoming, you have what Ken Ward Jr. calls a resource curse. West Virginia is not a poor state. West Virginia, historically, is a very wealthy state. It's just that the coal and the timber and the natural gas and the resources of the state are controlled by a small number of companies or people, and much of that wealth go, flows out of state to the, to the owners of those resources. And so, so it's important to, to keep that in mind. Um, so, but there's this concept called the resource curse where if you have uh, a natural resource uh, that can be extracted and it's, it's, it's readily extractable, and it will provide a, a you know, not insignificant number of uh, what are for that place good paying jobs. It actually is a curse because it discourages the formation of stronger, more diverse economies. West Virginia is one of our most resource gifted states, yet it's constantly one of the poorest when you actually look at the socioeconomic realities of the people who live there. From Chemical Valley, West Virginia, to Cancer Alley, Mississippi, to Bhopal, India, and the Ecuadorian Amazon, the flow of money out of the places which have been most impacted by extractive and heavy industries is a global reality. While the people who live in places where resources and industry are located typically stay poor and get sick, the economic benefits are experienced elsewhere. Remember, Wheeler said that his grandmother raised her children in coal camps in West Virginia. The benefits of the toil of West Virginians and the plundering of West Virginia uh, really are shared by people all over the United States. So, you know, part of the history of the coal industry in West Virginia is that the rest of the country has benefited from West Virginia's coal, and national leaders have promised that they would protect West Virginians and West Virginia from those adverse effects, and those promises have been broken. Another promise that's been broken? That coal is coming back. According to e and &E News, which is amazing, by the way, coal plant retirements under Trump have increased compared to the last four years of Obama's presidency. And electricity output from coal is at a 42-year low. We're down at below 11,000 uh, working coal miners in West Virginia, uh, you know, which is, which is half the number just, you know, a decade ago. The days when, uh, when we could count on coal is, is the essential employer um, I mean, those days are over. The coal industry here is is bottoming out. It's on a, a, a you know, a, a gigantic decline that from which most experts don't believe it's going to recover. Um, you couldn't tell a West Virginia politician that. They like to make the people of the state believe that the next boom is just around the corner. But so what we're dealing with now, really, with the coal industry in, in many ways is the end game. Uh, and by that, I mean... Um, uh, who's, who's going to clean up the messes that are left behind? 
The United Mine Workers has had to fight very hard to try to protect pension and retiree health care for its members. And at the same time, the fund that's supposed to pay benefits to, to miners and their families because of black lung is, is constantly running out of money. And then you have the environmental mess where there are scarred lands and polluted streams all over West Virginia and all over the coal fields everywhere that, that you know, as the coal industry is declining, the money that's available to clean them up keeps getting smaller. The death of coal has been a long time coming. And while that's good for the climate, it's triply tragic for the communities who depend on it. Not only do they have to deal with the economic consequences of a collapsing industry, but the enormous health and environmental realities coal leaves behind. Part of what solving the climate crisis entails is figuring out how to help places like West Virginia thrive. And so far, that hasn't been happening. Instead, it feels like both the sacrifice and the fate of West Virginians are being ignored. As long as the media wants to frame the West Virginia story as why is West Virginia red? Why does it why is it so Republican when the Republicans are for the coal companies, not the coal miners? And as opposed to taking a look at, hey, let's look at the bigger picture here that this country got wealthy and this country built an economy uh, and won a couple of world, world wars, and it did so off the blood, sweat, and toil in the scarred land. Uh, of, of West Virginia. So are we really at a place in our country where folks who don't live anywhere near a coal mine uh, and hate Donald Trump are willing to just say, well, I don't care what happens to those people in West Virginia anymore because they voted for Trump? Or are we going to be in a place in this country where we say, you know what, let's help lift West Virginia up and let's help make sure that those places that help build this country are going to get the help they need to diversify their economy, to improve their health care, to improve their schools. Do we, you know, does the rest of the country really care less about a kid in Logan County, West Virginia, than they do a kid on Long Island? I hope not. Uh, but sometimes it's hard not to think that that's where we are. It's not just coal. West Virginia's Chemical Valley, the Kenawa Valley near Charleston, the state's capital, is another place where public health and the environment suffer at the expense of heavy industry and the jobs it provides. West Virginia has a region uh, called that's known as Chemical Valley, where there are all these big chemical manufacturers. Um, and that is an area where, um, I think about five or six years ago, there was like a huge chemical spill in the water and people couldn't drink water for weeks, sometimes even months, um, because, you know, it got, it got into the water system. A year or two after this, uh, Congress actually did pass a big law that was designed to reform chemical safety that a lot of the companies had been very uneasy about because they don't want, they didn't want more regulation. And so I went there and I talked to people who, you know, were trying to figure, they're like, we don't, who said, you know, we don't want regulations that are so stringent that it would close down you know these chemical plants or make it harder for them or or send them overseas because these are our sources of jobs and we but we want rules that will protect us and 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 keep us you know from being afraid of drinking our own water and i think that that is just always a fundamental tension in in making environmental rules um and it's hard to strike a balance an EPA administrator needs to balance the health of the environment with the needs of businesses, many of which pollute and which often employ people in communities that bear the heaviest weight of this pollution. But this tricky compromise is part of why institutions like the EPA are so important. Like I said earlier in the episode, this is literally what we want government to do. 
Utilize the knowledge of experts to come to solutions that protect people, protect the environment, and protect business. But that's not what Wheeler's EPA is doing. And that's not who Andrew Wheeler is. We could have told you about Wheeler's childhood in southern Ohio, about how his dad died when he was a toddler, and how Wheeler's mother, a schoolteacher, raised three kids on her own. Quote, She has been my number one mentor, next to Senator Inhofe, and confidant, Wheeler told the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. In high school, Wheeler was a nondescript guy who played the trombone. According to END News, he was in debate club and worked each summer as the nature conservation director at the Woodland Trails Boy Scout Camp in Camden, Ohio. He'd go on to Case Western University and obtain a JD from Washington University in St. Louis. Later, he'd get an MBA from George Mason University. That's who Andrew Wheeler is. But who Andrew Wheeler is, is also the person who has single-handedly done more to undermine regulation designed to protect the environment and steer us away from climate catastrophe than almost anybody else in America. And he's done it as the head of the agency designed to do the exact opposite. We're going back to the EPA after this. The EPA is not meant to be a partisan organization. It's supposed to be like the FBI, but going after polluters instead of crime syndicates or whatever. The EPA is, is a pretty small agency. And an important thing to remember about federal agencies is the vast majority of the people who work there are not political appointees. They're career experts. They're, they're, there are people who, um, I think it's about 15,000 people total at the EPA. Um, and that's, that's career people, many of whom have worked there for decades. I know people at EPA who've worked there since the Reagan administration. They're not political. So again, you know, scientists, engineers, lawyers, you know, their, jo their job is to understand the science, understand the law, to execute the policy, but just do it very professionally. And, and I have talked to dozens of career staff in the last um, three and a half years of, of the Trump administration who have said, you know, we just... We feel like our life's work, we are watching our life's work being dismantled. We are watching this agency being torn apart. This is devastating to see. And so there has absolutely been an exodus of a lot of people at the EPA, a lot of career experts. There's also been a lot of people who stay either because they can't afford to leave, they don't have something lined up, they have small kids, who have said, okay, I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to make sure that science is really followed. I'm going to make sure that the law is really followed. I'm going to do whatever I can to just, you know, embed pure, real science in, into what is going on here and keep my head down and outlast, outlast this administration. I do think that if Trump were to win a second term, I think a lot of those people would just give up. I think that we would see truly an, a, a major, a, a vast exodus of people. And I, and I don't think that um, the types of people who typically would have been drawn to public service and the kind of work that the EPA does, those people would, would, would not be coming in. So I think then you would see like the big exodus of, of expertise that could have a really profound effect on the EPA's ability to follow the statute and follow its mandate. In 2019, Pew found that 63% of U.S. adults say stricter environmental regulations are, quote, worth the cost. But will the EPA recover from Andrew Wheeler? Here's Gina McCarthy. I've been, you know, working in this, this field for my whole life. 
Um, I'm 66. I'm still working on in this area because I, I need to fix climate change. I need to get it addressed because I have four beautiful grandchildren coming along or, and, and I, I need a, a, a future for them. And, and so I, I will tell you, it feels terrible in terms of how much the value of U.S. EPA has been degraded. It, I feel terrible for all the great career staff that are there that are not being allowed to do our job. I feel terrible that science is being disregarded and that this president and Wheeler are actually deceiving the public into thinking they're working for them instead of working for the polluting industries that support them. But I want your listeners to know that that they are in the end and even in the short term not going to win. Uh, they're not telling the truth. They are actually undermining our ability to lead a healthy life. And and I'm very excited that I think people now know, after trying to live through this pandemic, that we have to listen to scientists, not politicians, because politicians like President Trump are not telling us the truth. They're, in fact, telling us whatever they feel most expedient for their own political base. We shouldn't leave anybody behind or any community without thinking about how we can help them. And we have that opportunity. As much as it's difficult right now, you know, if people get out and vote and we do the right thing and we have a new administration, we have the best opportunity ever to actually have a healthier, safer, and more just climate-protected future. And so I'm pretty excited to uh, be going into my 67th year next year and to be celebrating success instead of hiding in my house and worried about the next move that this administration might make to under undermine the future of my grandchildren. And I think, you know, I want every young person to know that while we've lost time, it means that we can come roaring back if they all vote and they get this administration out of office, Wheeler will be a footnote in the history of the U.S. EPA. Andrew Wheeler isn't just a faceless bureaucrat. He's a critical actor playing a decisive role in the climate crisis. And that's not all. As administrator of the EPA, he's pushing harmful deregulation that will lead to more pollution in our air, our water, and our environment. Deregulation that, in some cases, industry doesn't even want and which doesn't help places like West Virginia develop economies that provide stable jobs that don't destroy public health and the environment. Government is big, unwieldy, and oftentimes ineffective. But government is also essential. It enables us to lead the lives we do, and it is the only mechanism we have that is big enough and powerful enough to tackle an existential threat like the climate crisis. To do that, we need a strong federal bureaucracy, a strong EPA, and we need a strong EPA administrator who understands that the climate crisis poses an existential threat to life in the United States. If Joe Biden wins this election, what do you hope his EPA administrator does on January 21st? I hope that they go to the United States Environmental Protection Agency headquarters and I hope they have an all-hands meeting for the 14 or so thousand people that work there and tell them that science and the law is back. <laughs> That's what I want them to tell them. And then I want them to hunker down and get the work done for the people in this country so that we can keep ourselves safe and get our planet stable. 
On the next episode of Who Is, we look at the man who's been responsible for a plurality of the Supreme Court, the body which could decide whether or not it's constitutional for the government to regulate carbon emissions in order to save us all from climate catastrophe. It's de facto head of the conservative legal movement, Leonard Leo, next time on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our experts, Coral Davenport, who covers energy and environmental policy with a focus on climate change, at the New York Times, Gina McCarthy, president and CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council Action Fund. McCarthy previously served as administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency during the Obama administration. And Ken Ward Jr., who covers West Virginia at ProPublica. Ward is also co-founder of Mountain State Spotlight, a new nonprofit news organization focusing on West Virginia, which you should definitely check out. Who is? It's a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, writer and senior producer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xoros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Who is the podcast season two? New episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have someone or something you think we should cover, email me at sm at nowthismedia.com.